you know, I've got a great saying that 1% a day for 100 days is the way that you get there. And we just quietly kept chipping away. Welcome to the Approachable Equestrian Podcast, a place where we dive deep into all things mindset, motivation, and stories that inspire. I am your host, Rihanna Burke, fellow equestrian, rider, and competitor, and I am determined to shine a light on all things inclusive in the equestrian community. With that said, let's jump in to today's episode. Welcome, this is episode 48 of the Approachable Equestrian Podcast. On today's episode, I have a really exciting guest. She is otherwise known as the Galloping Housewife. Her name is Shawan Green. And even just from the bio that she sent in to me, she made me have a giggle. And she has done so much on her crazy journey that she knows as life. And I'm really excited to share this episode with you because it is all about personal perseverance and just taking one step and achieving so many things when you don't even see them coming just because you keep going. So here is her bio. Shawan Green is probably the least successful half-decent rider New Zealand has ever produced. An abject failure at eventing, she spent a year in a show jumping yard in the US where she was laughed out of the arena on her first ride. On returning to New Zealand, nearing middle age and embarking on parenthood, she thought she'd do the sensible thing and give dressage a go. Her first dressage horse was a 10-year-old station bred with a world-class spook. Together, they defied all expectations to progress from novice to the International Grand Prix Arena, managing not to win a single notable trophy on the way. Shawan's next horse made the trip to the UK with her and as soon as he started scoring in the mid-70s at small tour level, blew a suspensory and never returned to top level competition. Third time wasn't to be lucky either, with Shawan and her first fancy European warm blood being the first Kiwi combination to qualify for the World Young Horse Championships with a score of 88% only to go lame in the warm-up with an obscure degenerative bone disease. Shawan hasn't given up on her dreams though. She still intends to win at least one dress rug before she quits. She lives somewhere in the UK with her husband, two mostly house-trained teenagers, a ridiculous designer dog and a fluffy white cat. You can find her online and socials by searching for The Galloping Housewife. So please, with that said, let's jump into this episode and welcome Shawan Green. Thank you so much for doing this. No trouble at all. When I came across your Facebook page and I started reading into what you've achieved and how it's all just been so ordinary, the whole thing, I was like, I have to get you on the podcast because I just feel like I've just turned 30 and you... On your website, you know, it says you've only done your first affiliated dressage when you turn 30. And I just think so many people have such massive dreams and then they think, oh, it's too far gone. I'm too late. I can't achieve anything. But you just defied all the odds. And I went, oh, I have to chat to you. Yeah. I mean, well, that was accidental, though. You know, like the whole thing about, you know, people have say they have big dreams. I mean, I really, really didn't. And I mean, even how I started riding, my, my it was my sister. I'm by far the youngest in our family. My sister is 13 years older than me. Her brother's 11 years older than me. And we were living on a farm. My sister was the horse mad one. And actually, so my 
parents are not into horses at all. And my sister was was crazy and she bugged them and bugged them and bugged them and, you know, eventually was allowed a pony. I mean, my father was, he was a dairy farmer and he was a very, a very astute dairy farmer. He was actually world-renowned. We, I was born in Korea, so if you've got to that part of my um, my bio, I was born in South Korea. When my father was over there, he was working for the World Bank, teaching the Koreans how to grow cows because, you know, the, they need a lot of dairy products in Korea. Not. Anyway, so he was very keen on keeping the dairy pasture pure and he kept saying well you know one horse equals five cows so we can't do that you know that's how much grass they eat and um yeah how much land they destroy you know he used to go on and on about the cows fence walking and uh, the horses fence walking and all this type of stuff and how you know how much usable pasture they just just destroy so my sister finally was allowed a pony and I just followed on I wasn't really I mean like I used to I got dragged around my weekends when I was very little consisted of spending Saturdays at the motocross with my brother and Sundays at the pony club events with my sister and yeah so I could have gone either way you know either riding motorbikes or riding horses but what happened was that my sister had a friend whose parents bred ponies and they had one that they wanted to donate to the RDA but it was inexperienced and so the RDA wanted it to have a bit more mileage so my sister put up her hand and said oh well, can we can have it here and Shawan can ride it. So I came home from Christmas. We had a summer holiday, went out camping, came home, got up the next morning, went down to have my breakfast, and there's a pony in the kitchen. And it was that was it, you know, like it was just there's a pony in the kitchen. But I wasn't I wasn't competitive at all. We lived rurally, we like I said, we lived on a farm. I we didn't have, you know, like we don't have a neighborhood where you go out and play with friends. So I had a pony to come home to and I'd kick about with a pony. Actually, there were a few of us in the sort of district in the neighborhood that had ponies and we just used to go out and ride around the roads and like would turn up at each other's houses and you know that was our transport to the neighbors and all that type of stuff and yeah and then I started pony club and but yeah I mean I competed through pony club did a bit of low level eventing pony club games and and that sort of thing but you know it was as much about the social side of things it was as much about just playing with my pony, having something to do when I came home from school. And yeah, it certainly wasn't like this grand ambition. We were, so we were in, uh, grew up in the Waikato, so we we're just south of Hamilton. And at our pony club, our main pony club branch was in Kiki. And this, the, so this is in New Zealand for anyone. This is in New Zealand. Yeah. So I grew up, yeah. So I grew up um, Kiwi. So uh, we were actually only in Korea. I was six months old when we went back home to New Zealand and next to Kiki Pony Club was a Nicholson family so Andrew Nicholson's mother was like one of the stalwarts of our local pony club and in fact my second third pony was given to me by Andrew when he moved to the UK so 36 37 years ago yeah I got given this pony when um, Andrew came over here but yeah so you know it was just we, we, we had a lot of uh, Andrew was there. Mark Tobb was just down the road in Cambridge, and you know there's Vicky Larter and Nikki, Nicoly Fife, who are not so well known now, but were they, you know they rode world champs and and that sort of uh, sort of thing back in those days. So we had that kind of like vague inspiration that there was something out there that that was possible, but it wasn't like we, it wasn't well certainly not for me. I didn't grow up with any grand ambitions of doing anything major with the horses it was just like yeah hung around with them and and I was and honestly I'm averagely talented you know like I'm not, <laughs> I'm 
not someone that sort of naturally gifted on a horse. I was just like, yeah, got on and kicked it. And sometimes it jumped and sometimes it didn't, you know, it was like, yeah, it wasn't anything special. That's really cool. So for anyone listening, what have you done in your riding journey up to this point? Well, so uh, yeah, it is. So uh, it is and it isn't. I mean, like I, like I said, I just sort of did the pony club thing. I yeah, I invented. We had pony club. We have pony club champs in in New Zealand. I mean, now we have like there's the dressage champs, the show jumping champs, the eventing champs. In those days, pretty much everything in New Zealand was based around eventing. I mean, it was the, it was the thing that we were we, we we did. There was a bit of show jumping around. Certainly no dressage at all. And so uh, yeah, we have kind of like all of the pony club year is based around going to pony club events and then you go to area trials and then you go to national champs. I never made the national champs level. I went to area trials a few times, sort of A1DC. It's, it's actually about equivalent to a novice level, so prelim horse trials in the States. Yeah, it's decent-sized fences when, when you're doing it, but, you know, when we were galloping around them on ponies, but it was very, very, very low-key. And I, like I said, I wasn't particularly good at it. And... I uh, couldn't see a distance to save my life and still can't. <laughs> as long so, as you have fun while you're trying, that's all that matters. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. And so I left school and I decided to do nursing and I ended up in Auckland working at the major children's, uh, Starship Children's Hospital in, in Auckland and living right in the city. And so I decided I, you know, like in all my wisdom, I was, again, that was enough. The horses were done. Sold everything. Should, should never, ever do. Lasted it's, about a year. It is a bit of a disease. It's like no matter how much you think, yep, this is it. I'm cutting it off. I've had enough. I'm just, I'm done with it. it they just creep back in. All of they, a sudden they, you see a friend on a horse and you're like, oh, I could do that again. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, that's exactly it. And in fact, that's exactly why I'm back eventing, but yeah, that's way, way, way down the store. But yeah, so we, yes, and so I decided, I had someone offer me a horse and it's like, but I mean, I, I used to, I was driving 45 minutes from the middle of Auckland up to Albany to ride. And back in those days, Albany was rural. It's no longer. And I had to buy everything again. My God, it was expensive. Uh, but I know, again, I was just really, really low level. And I nursed for a couple of years, really enjoyed it, but kind of got to that point and there's this big and it's same in Australia other people around the world probably don't understand it the same same way we do but where is the big OE you know like where you graduate where you uh, and you head off usually to the UK we have the working holiday visa and certainly when I was young everybody did it like that was the thing you just like bug it off and and spread your wings and and did a little bit and did a um, bit of a working holiday and yeah 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 a bit of a tour and so at that point so I'd been working for a couple of years when we when I graduated from nursing there was actually were not many jobs so getting that postgraduate experience was really difficult and in fact the job that I got at the starship was there were seven jobs going on the Auckland hospital campus and 300 applicants so wow. when I, yeah so when I got it I I was going to do it you know I was going to get that yeah you're going to cling to that experience. yeah yeah so so did that for a couple of years but then we got to this point and there was like a bunch of us that had all graduated together so we'd all been part of that sort of same intake but we're all getting sort of like a little bit itchy feet and there were a bunch of nurses that decided that they were going to come over here, going to come over to the UK and base themselves in London and do all that. There's a lot of agency nursing. And they called themselves the nine naughty nurses going to the UK. And I was like, oh, 
I need to go, but I don't want to go to the UK. I don't want to like lift my life that we had in Auckland, which was basically we're either at work or working together. I mean, like big hospital campus, but we're all working together. Or we'd have our after work drinks. So we're all going to the same pub. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to sort of come over to the England and be in London and doing that, having that same life. And I was like, I think I want to go and ride horses. And yeah, I have no idea because, like I said, I wasn't wasn't very good. But at the time, my sister had just bought a show jumping stallion from the states to stand in New Zealand, and yeah, just kind of a little bit of a sideline for for their other business and stuff. So she approached the sales yard that that bought the horse from, and they, he said, "Yeah, sure, come. She can come here and yeah, ride." So I ended up in New York State for eighteen months, um, working for a really and looking back now, I mean, I, I just so naive, but he is actually a very well-renowned sort of sales yard. He produces he produces horses, brings in a lot of horses from Europe, mainly from Holland, but also sources them around the States and, and sells them on and places them. And uh, a hunter-jumper, the American hunter-jumper system. Uh, so I went and based myself there for um, 18 months, which was great, which is really cool. But I mean, like, I, honestly, I, I remember riding down to the arena for the first time on this horse and I just had no clue. I mean, I was absolutely none at all. And I didn't know what to wear and I didn't know what gear to put on. And I didn't know what to do. And I almost got laughed out of the arena when I got down there. So, yeah, I spent a lot of time learning. What the Kiwis, you know, have in sort of kind of just feel natural horsemanship and seat of the pants riding, the Americans have in style and, you know, putting polish on things and, yeah, sort of uh, form follows function. Uh, function follows form over there. I learned so much about, you know, how to sit on a horse and how to, and also how to produce a horse, how to take what they had and mold it, you know, and work with what the you know what the best in it yeah 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 it it was that was really cool so I spent 18 months there and then decided I mean like we're we're typical grooms you know in in those days plus we none of us had visas so it was a little bit dodgy (laughs) so uh, so I decided to head back home head back to New Zealand a little bit rootless family farm had been sold in the meantime and my brother had moved from the North Island down to the South Island mid-Canterbury uh, so I decided I would go down to Christchurch and and just to be sort of have family nearby and yeah and I just started riding again but just get picking up things off the track and producing them and and mucking around so yes yeah, so I did that for quite a while and I was kind of producing horses selling them yeah very low key things similar to what was what was going on in the states but yeah I mean like very average. Yeah, I say very average, and I had, but I did have some nice horses that came through that I sold on. I mean, like I was selling a lot of just stuff, but you know, there were some nice horses that sort of that went through the yard. So at this stage, sorry, at this stage, so had you stopped nursing at the time, and you're just back doing horses full time, or what did that look like? Yeah, I was nursing part time. I was actually working for Canteen, you know, Canteen, the teenage cancer 
patients society i was the like co- uh, coordinator for the south island or for canterbury and west coast yeah doing a lot of kind of like fundraising and support for you know teenagers with cancer yeah so doing that and the horses and then i actually became pregnant with my first child which was and so ended up being a solo mum so i had baby and the horses and the bit of nursing and the stuff just lots of juggle yeah yeah just shit happening um yeah, so I had, I had a nice little event. I, I kind of had like all the stuff that I was producing, which, you know, was um, stuff off the track and just bits and pe- pe- bobs that people didn't really want. And But I wanted one nice horse that I could just compete on a little bit. I had bought myself a old two-star eventer who was retiring, you know, so um, at, at the end of his career. And I was just going around and, and doing kind of like training level, pre-novice level eventing and having a ton of fun at it as much as, yeah, <laughs> you used to go to horse trials with a nanny and you'd get to, like you'd come through the finish flags and you'd be absolutely dripping in sweat as you are, you know, it's a really glamorous sport and then someone hands you a fussy baby to um, to breastfeed as you come through the finish flags. It's like, oh, just give me a moment. Yeah, and actually I've got a great photo of Harper bathing her in the, sink of my truck and um yeah and I was actually parked out outside Janelle Price's for I was at her 21st and I'd gone up and I had a um, an event in the morning in Christchurch so I'd gone up and parked parked outside her place throwing my horse in the field with hers and yeah and Harper was <laughs> there with me I mean the things we do the things we do is like you know just keeping everything going um but anyway so read the horse that I was riding the eventing was actually quite good at flat work dressage and I was having some dressage lessons with him and I actually started I competed him a couple of times in pure dressage just for fun and did, did quite well and I thought oh yeah I quite like this dressage and I lost him to colic which was horrible but it's that's another thing with horses and I at the time I had I had just inherited a small amount of money, $15,000. So I thought, I'm going to go and buy myself a nice horse for what $15,000 can buy. And I thought, I should might look for a dressage horse, you know, just because I quite like the dressage. And that's how I ended up with Gosh. And so I decided to go up to Palmerston North, which is a town in, in North Island of New Zealand. And it's a town where there is a lot of dressage in those days there was a lot of like major dressage was close close by it and so I went up there to look at one particular horse who was well-bred competing at elementary level and well screwed well uh, produced by someone that was reasonably well known but the night before I was going up there I was looking online and there was this little two-line advert no photos no nothing just this two-line advert for this horse that was also for sale in the area and who was a bit older not well bred at all but I just I don't know what appealed to me about it so I I gave the people a call and I said yeah I'm up there anyway can I come and see your horse and she said well we've been on holiday for the last week I don't even know I haven't even been out to see it yet but sure <laughs> and so so I tacked it on and I went up and I went and looked rode the horse first that I primarily went up to see and it was nice and if honestly if it, if I hadn't seen gosh I would have bought that because it was just it was a nice horse it was a little bit little bit dull a little bit you know kind of like wooden in its in its way of going but it was nice and it was and it was pretty and it could do well beyond where I mean like I, I hadn't even 
I think I'd written a novice test at that point, but it was, you know, it was going elementary. It was doing a few, starting to go sideways and doing a few things like that. And so I thought, yeah, that'll do. Um, then I went and went to ride Gosh. And Gosh, we were at actually one of, in those days, one of New Zealand's few indoor arenas they had on this property. And so we decided we'd ride them indoors. It was um, later at night. But the lights there weren't all that good and there were shadows and everything. And Gosh was so spooky. He spent all his time spinning and going sideways. So I thought, right, no, we'll go take him outside and ride him there. I mean, he was just, he was electric. He was sensitive. And it was just one of those things. I just sat on him and I rode him around for about five minutes. And I just said to the people, look, I'm not going to waste your time anymore. I'll take him. And yeah, and that was that. So I bought, bought Gosh. And again, I was buying a horse that I thought, I would like to do, you know, sort of elementary, medium level dressage. If I learned to do a flying change, that would be me made up. Yeah. And um, and it just went from there. I um, was training with the same trainer and she suggested that I went and saw Bill Noble, who was one of our um, sort of national level trainers at the time. And I was like, oh, he, he won't want to deal with me. She goes, just go, and, just go and try him out. And so I went along to this lesson and, Actually, you sent me some questions before this and you talk about that one moment that kind of like that you decided that it was for you. And I went to this lesson and he said, oh, well, just, you know, just warm up as you normally do. Just just trot around for a while. And we had headsets on and I was trotting around on on gosh just you know, stretching, doing a few circles and bits and pieces. I kept trotting and kept trotting and kept trotting and kept trotting and kept trotting. And there was like nothing. It was like silence. And then after about five minutes, Bill came over the headset and he goes, well, the trot is world class. I guess we should look at the canter. And it was just like, wow. Yeah. And it was like, and Bill also never, like, yeah, he, he just thought, yeah, the horse is phenomenal. And he's, and he was a, guy um people who don't you know who haven't been around the sport for a long time people in the UK will probably know Bill he's English um people in New Zealand definitely do but he grew up here he ran yards in the UK and he was also the trainer for Trish Gardner who took Wiley Imp to which is a thoroughbred and competed at the LA Olympics I want to say yeah I think it's the Los Angeles Olympics so he's you know he's coached sort of unconventional horses through to the highest level and so yeah and so he that was the thing is that he was like he looked at gosh thought gosh was good but he also didn't tell me that I needed to get off the horse didn't tell me that it needed a better rider than me and I really didn't you know I didn't have any of the talent that I thought that, that I was needed for that yeah and then he just kept pushing you to do more and more and so eventing kind of was in the background now and then you just fell in love with dressage how did it progress from there oh yeah no I just I mean I just carried on with the dressage I pretty much gave up eventing at that time I had got married to my husband had a second child and you can only really do one discipline well so it was yeah I concentrated on the dressage from from that point so yeah yeah and then what were some of your highlights of your dressage career with gosh um well getting them all the way to the Grand Prix was probably you know, um, is up there. Um, and it was just a matter of keeping going. You know, I've got a great saying that 1% a day for 100 days is the way that you get there. And we just quietly kept chipping away. Yeah. And, and we just kept going. I mean, like Bill just, 
was quietly there saying, yeah, do the next thing and do the next thing and do the next thing. It took me, I mean, like it wasn't without hiccups. I mean, it took me two years from the first time that I did one, one. So like a single tempi change in and out on the long side to doing 15 ones, like two years of this horse is never going to get its one-time changes. Just And yeah, I just quietly persisted. In fact, there's still a video of him doing 15 one-time changes in competition for the first time ever. I've still got it on um, YouTube. I was like so excited because it took me it took me years and years to, to get that sort of nailed. So it was just yeah. quietly persisting, you know. And people that look at things that it all goes linear, nothing ever what you see in the arena is just like yeah, what you see in the arena. There is always something that people have to get through to get into that arena. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it would have been a wild journey for you. So it is just a huge effort just to get a horse to Grand Prix at all. So, yeah, what was your sort of timeline like? Because for a non-professional rider that you were at the time and you didn't even have Still am, still am, still am non-professional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you at the time, like you had no ambition to go, hey, I'm going to go and qualify for an Olympics or I'm going to go to the Grand Prix or anything. Like what did that look like for you? Well, that's just it. There was no timeline. It was just always about the next stage. Uh, you know, and, and it was just, I mean, I always thought I would go further. The horse had an incredible talent from uh, for Piaf and Passage, and actually it was Andrew McLean, you know, Andrew from just from down the road from you guys, <laughs> Melbourne, and um, he came over and did a clinic in New Zealand and just used Gosh for a bit of a demo and just with his stop and go, you know, really basic sort of responses that, you know, cues that he um, uses. And that's how I got my first steps of Passage with Gosh, you know, like there's little bits that just sort of like, and, and when you, once you have it, you're like, holy shit, this is the coolest thing in the world. So, you know, you w- want to be able to produce that, but it's also about, yeah, it was just keeping going. I mean, I remember going to a show and that one of my competitors had a new tail coat and I was going, oh, that's really nice. Um, you know, who, where did you get it made? Um, you know, um, I wouldn't mind having one myself. And she was like, well, first you need to get to the pre-St. George. Just like completely, you're never going to get there. And I was like, okay. Um, yeah. So the next year, I actually beat her in the precinct George at the local regional champs. But it was, <laughs> it was just, <laughs> that's yeah, awesome. It was just about quietly carrying on, like quietly doing the next thing, quietly doing the next thing. Um, you know, I didn't have I had an ambition to get to precinct George when I was at Open Medium, an ambition to you know do the into um, into two when I was at precinct George. I had an ambition to do the Grand Prix when I was at into two and. Then it was just a matter of, you know, being one of New Zealand's top picks to come over and do. And I actually backed myself. I did back myself to come to Australia the first time. So um, and I just thought I never know if I'm ever going to be good enough. I have a horse that's good enough, have a horse that's sound enough, have the opportunity again to do it. So I will make that call. And it was a big call. You know, it cost me quite a bit of money. Um, I came over, I did Australian Champs, Equitana, and then I stayed on to do the World Cup final out at Werribee. So, and it was great. It was awesome because it just gave me that experience. And as it turns out, I've not had that horse. I've not had it, you know, your horse has not been good enough, sound enough. You know, I've not been in a position ever to do that again. So if I hadn't taken that opportunity to go there, A, I wouldn't have been chosen for the team for the Olympic selection trials. 
but I've not got to that level again. So that was that was the point where I had to do it and I will get there again, but that's the point where I had to do it. So yeah. So yeah. what still drives you to want to get back there again? That's a really good question. I think just the knowledge that I just the knowledge that I can and that I like that journey. I like that sort of being able to produce a horse to do a Grand Prix. And it's just that ability to go out there and share that relationship with the world. Yeah. You know, and share what your horse can do and, you know, and how you communicate with everybody else. Yeah. That's, that's what drives me. Yeah. And I know I'm good enough and I know I've still got time. And so I'm quietly chipping away. Yeah. That's the best part I love about our sport is it doesn't matter what age you start or what age you are and you can always do so much. So it's really cool. So what does your everyday life look like at the moment? You're not in New Zealand anymore? No, no. So I'm up in Scotland and actually, um, so we've been, we've been in the UK for eight years and everything that can go wrong has gone wrong since we came over here. I had, so the horse that I bought over who was at good small tour level was winning at small tour was just starting to do the grand prix and he did a suspensory for the first time so we took rehabbed him three times and then eventually decided that his body wasn't going to ever stand up to the grand prix so we yeah so so that was the end of his career i bought an absolute superstar three-year-old stallion from germany when i first got over here Promptly qualified for the world championships. He debuted on 83% and topped out at 88 that year. Went wow. to the world championships, went lame in the warm-up over there and pretty much never returned. Took three years and all our money to diagnose that he had a degenerative bone disorder. Oh, um, yeah, we've, we've had issues with immigration, no, huge issues with immigration. They've um, in seven applications, they've made incorrect decisions six times. <laughs> And it's that's a hugely expensive battle. We've spent about £90,000 already. Um, we've got a bit more to go. Yeah, won a few battles in court, but it hasn't made up for it. So the move right. has just been really fun and very frustrating by the sounds of things. Very frustrating. I mean, I came over here to ride horses and, you know, came over here to set up business and it's it's been, it's been challenging, but I mean, like I also came over here because I didn't want to be a big fish in a small pond. I didn't, I wanted to be somewhere where I'm just a number, you know, like where I am going out and I need to be pushed by those around me. And the quality of competition over here is right from the, yeah, yeah, just right from the really low levels, right from the, from the very beginning. It's just... It's it's amazing to see, you know, and and the and the knowledge and the desire to have the you know the real basics correct. You know, it's not it's not about you know being able to do movements. It's actually being able to have your horse on the bit correctly. You know, it's being able to yeah. do really good transitions. It's about being able to you know, ride your corners, and it's and went to my first. First show here was a high profile. I had no idea, but anyway, um, it should have been the little local one down the road. But my first show here was a high profile, and I went and did small tour on on Dears, and I went out and did a pre St George test, and I think I scored just under sixty eight percent there. And actually, that was yeah, this is a, a while ago, but that year that was the highest scoring pre St George 
a New Ze- from a New Zealand combination. Here, I was tenth, and it was you know, I, I, yes, there was only actually no, I must have been just under sixty nine percent because there, um, the winner was on on, on a lick under seventy two, and it was three percent between first and tenth. You know, it was, it, but is that it's that close? You know, they, they, we're all yeah. sitting up there, and yeah, I mean, yes, I made a I made an error in one line of changes, so the quality was right there, but it just showed me so much about the difference you know that, that, that you can't go out and make an error you know in and at that time in New Zealand you could either have the quality or you could have a mistake-free test you would win by a mile whereas here you had to have the quality and a mistake-free test and it was yeah and it was great it was it, that's that's why I came here I came here and I, initially we were based in Wiltshire because that is where Gloucestershire Wiltshire were um Chipping Camden to start with, and then um, down to Sirencester, and um, lately it's in Swindon. And it was because that is like the hub, you know. Uh, we've got everyone's around. I was I was based with Peter Store when I first came over here, um, and then went to Bill Levitt, who you will know. Um, I was at his yard for a while, rented off him, and then said it went into my own yard down in Sirencester, just down the road from the Beckelsteimers. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, I went. <laughs> I would go to the well, like a literally our local very local days that we used to have around the corner at Hunters. Yeah, you'd go around there and you'd be up against Laura Becklesteimer and you'd be up against Carl Hester and you'd be up against Charlotte Dujardin and you'd be up against Mark Todd and you'd be, you know, these are the people that at our local, the local event, you know. Yeah, like they're your competition people. now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, I actually remember my first... <laughs> Going going up to Hartbury and warming up up there and and someone being a little bit rude in the warm up and so I just like didn't even look and just like rode not quite into them but just did did a um just said you know, like screw you <laughs> don't ride into me and looked up and it was bloody Charlotte I was like, <laughs> like oh hi oopsies. <laughs> Hello, but yeah, and actually, I've got the one. One day, I beat Charlotte at, um, in an elementary test at Hunters, and I still have the score sheet. <laughs> I frame it, you know. It's like, it's like I beat Charlotte. Yeah, I beat Charlotte. Yeah, and that's um, what I love about eventing. Is there's often huge Olympians in the really low classes, and they're often on, yeah. you know, a really green horse to be at that yeah. level. And you're like, haha, I've beat you. I've only been at the same level for three years, but I still beat you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's huge. So it's really, it's really cool. And actually also the other thing about being in that part of the world is that, you know, I'm the only Kiwi dressage, well, I have been the only Kiwi dressage rider in Europe for a long time. There's a, there's a, a few more now, but not a lot. And so the eventers were all just down the road. Andrew Mark, Tim and Janelle, Dan Jocelyn, Andy Danes when he came over. And yeah, so it was nice to have that like community that's yeah, definitely nearby. Yeah. Now, another side question, and I know this wasn't on the question list that I sent you, a bit of a sidebar. How did we convince the family? Did you move with your family to the UK or just your husband? Or how does how'd you go? How did you convince? How did you um, that one in? It was it was my husband's idea. So we did the Olympic selection trials. We qualified New Zealand's first ever team for the London Olympics, and then the New Zealand Olympic Committee, in all its wisdom, decided that they were only going to send an individual. And I wasn't Aww. one of the, yeah, and I wasn't really up for that. Plus, I mean, like, gosh, by that stage was sixteen, 
17. I had no expectations when I bought him. So he had already surpassed. He owed me absolutely zero. So the thought of them bringing him over here and then bashing him around the European tour circuit to try and get, you know, to try and beat um, at that time it was Louisa and Vanessa into that spot to get to the Olympics wasn't, you know, wasn't my idea of what I owed him. So we decided not to do that. And then we were watching... So Horse and Country TV over here put on a show, uh, Road to the Olympics or Road to Gold, maybe. And it did all this behind the scenes stuff of Carl and Charlotte, especially, but the British team and the lead up to London. And Vanessa Way, who was one of the one of the two contenders for the, that spot, she had based herself with Carl. And so she was in this video and like everything that, I say everything that could go wrong has gone wrong for us over eight years. Everything that could go wrong had gone wrong for Vanessa in that six months. Um, you know, she had a horse went, went lame. There were a whole lot of health issues and there are a lot of health issues with, with traveling horses over here. You either come yeah. just before the event or you come a year before the event because of the, you know, the screw up and the coming, changing hemispheres and everything. It really, really deals to them. And like actually, even her father died towards the end of her campaign. It was just, it was absolutely goddamn awful. And Louisa also had a rough time. You know, she she had time. Uh, her horse's health deteriorated as well. You know, she didn't couldn't find herself a prop, a base that suited her, and it wasn't nice. And then she got to the Olympics, and her horse got a bee sting, and didn't perform anywhere near what it was capable of. And so my husband, we were sitting there watching this thing and my husband's sort of said, you know, if they go up there and they have all these problems, you know, to be international, why don't we just go and base ourselves up there? And I was like, well, let me think about this. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Point two of a second. Okay. You talked me into it. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So it was, uh, it was him that suggested it. And um, he sounds like a keeper. Yes. Yes, he is a keeper. He is someone that is exceptionally well trained. Uh takes full credit <laughs> for that. But um no, he, he has he is really he is incredibly supportive. And it's I mean, he has been in in sort of every aspect. It's kind of like being we are a family unit and this is where we're going. And in fact, for a while there, it took us a long time to sell our property and, and, and get organized to come up here. And yeah, he was quite keen for me to just jump on a plane and come, but I wasn't going to do that. And yeah, we had two small children. And so it was, yeah, we literally packed up, we packed up the uh, the horse, the dog, the two kids and came over here. So yeah, wow. um yeah, it took a while, but yeah, no, that's that's that, that's how that happened. I came over for a bit of a recce at the end of 2012 drove around saw a few people stayed with a few people just to have a look at where everyone was based get a bit of a feel for that and then yeah we literally just jumped on a plane and took it in faith we this is in the days before airbnb so but we got basically an airbnb for the first two months and put the horse with peter and came over and went from there wow that's one hell of a ride so it sounds like since you've been there as well in the UK, like all these big setbacks and everything, and you still sound so motivated to continue on and trudge along and stuff. Where does that come from? Where does that drive come from? That is a uh, another very good question. But I, um, yeah, no, I, I well, really, how do you, how do you come back from all these setbacks? You just well the. <laughs> 
why don't you join me and sort your shit out? Um, it's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> like basically, that's why I've set up the Galloping Housewife because it's the thing is that what we have in us and you know, it's you know, and I, I and I speak specifically to kind of middle aged women. My sort of la- like the people that I speak to are actually the forty to sixty year olds. You know, the and the ones that have. And I speak to galloping housewives, and we call it the galloping housewives, very much tongue in cheek. But it's the it's people that have, if we've hung out with, if we've ridden, if we've lived rurally, if we've done those sorts of things, then we have kept a whole bunch of plates spinning. You know, we have usually raised families, but we've certainly got relationships and friendships and that sort of thing. If we don't have what's traditional, traditionally a family unit, we have what we've created as a family unit around us. Um, we have our worker business. We have whatever that, you know, keeps us going and whatever pay, pays our bills for us. We've kept ourselves, you know, obviously we're alive at this point, so we've kept ourselves reasonably healthy and reasonably fit and, and you know, taking care of ourselves and our own needs. Um, and we've most of us have done it also keeping our horses going. So also competing, also training, also looking after doing the day-to-day care and all that type of stuff. There are so many skills that we have within us. You know, like we have, if you've done those things, it doesn't matter you know, at what level or we've managed our lives and we've found solutions. We've dealt with chaos. We've dealt with emergencies. We've dealt with, I mean, you have to have had shit that's landed on your lap that you have gotten through. So there's your proof. So there's the thing that tells you that you can get get there. And if you don't have that proof for that specific thing that you're going through right now, you can borrow it. You can look around you because someone else in our community will have got through similar shit to what you're getting through at the moment. So if they can do it, you can fucking do it. Excuse me. You can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if they can do it, you can do it because they can, you know, they they are ordinary just like you. You know, we're all living these really ordinary lives. And so that's my whole thing. It's like I have gotten through stuff like this before, so I know that I can get through stuff like this again. And, yeah, it's a method that I have that I look at things, you know, really looking closely at where you are, you know, facing up to the shit that you face that you're in and not pretending that it doesn't, it's not there and it doesn't exist. And then, you know, figuring out who you want to be uh, on the other side of it. Pro- and more importantly is is the why. And the why for me is not about where I'm going to be when I get to the other side of the challenge. It's like what that where is going to allow me to do. So it's like it's the next step beyond getting through this challenge. It's not about, see, uh, uh, you know, my motivation to continue is not about producing another horse to Grand Prix. It's about then allowing me to, you know, to hit the international circuit again. It's, it's then allowing me you know, to reach more people or, you know, and, and to help more people. It's It's those things. It's not about, it's not just about, their destination it's about what that destination lets you see and lets you do beyond that yeah so we've touched on the galloping housewife and sort your shit out so it's all about being in the online sort of learning space and things like that what is it all about what do you offer on your website like can you fill in the listeners on what it's all about so the Galloping Housewife started the Facebook group a page about four or five years ago and I was I was at badminton and I had been doing a bit of work with Lucinda Green and I was and I was going out 
with her. So, so Lissa had this horse called Ali, Marlon Head Clover, um, that she'd gone around badminton on. The horse was actually owned by Keith Flint of Prodigy fame, so which was really cool. And so when Keith died, she was left this horse and she, it had been retired from top level competition. And so she gave it to her groom, Lydia, who was, and Lydia was taking it around and doing like little, doing the BE90s. And so I was carting around these things, sort of like being cheer squad as part of my work with Lucinda. And I was watching it, I was going like, oh, I would so love to do that again. And it was after my horses had been, both my, I'd lost both my horses to injury. I wasn't actually riding at the time. And, uh, and you know, there's that whole thing when you get, it's a little bit of pressure and actually someone put up on one of my posts the other day about having an immense amount of privilege and knowing that they were in a very privileged situation and I was and I responded to her and I said well privilege comes with its own burden you know the fact that we might have a certain amount of money or we might have a certain level of horse that is in our yard or we might have a really great job we feel beholden to that we feel that we have to do go down that path. So if you've got the good dressage horse, you must concentrate on, on the dressage. You must be, you know, looking to the to compete further with that. If you know, if you've got a lot of resources, you you know, you might feel that you've got family expectations about what you should be doing with your time and you know how you should be presenting yourself and and all sorts of things that go along with that. And with the dressage, when you when you're competing at dressage and, you, and I come over here looking at you know competing internationally at, at, at doing all that the highest level and you don't allow yourself to think I just want to gallop at a solid fence you know I just want to go out and just piss about and have some fun I want to go out and and go to a show where no one cares who I am no one's looking at the scoreboard you know where I can just just go out and enjoy being around people that you know that I like and you know and and just having a blast and you know I was out this weekend and I went out there and I was embarrassing dressage test it was so bad yeah my my little Connemara was hot as Hades I fed him up too much and yeah and it was his first show of the season and yeah it it, it was just terrible and then I went and we did a, a show jumping and we both made a mistake at one fence and took a row. It should be easy and then we went out cross country and it was just an absolute blast and I had the best day like the whole thing it was just like I don't care I mean I don't care that I go into the I come out middle of the field in the dressage it's like mm, I don't care you know it took a rail and we ended up we ended up midfield um, we also got two fast time faults because purely because I didn't think there it was possible for my horse to make the time so <laughs> it, was, it was like you know like we end up firmly middle of the field and it's just like that's the best feeling and mm-hmm. so I wanted to recreate that and I had this this thing when back in New Zealand we, we used to have this uh we have Manny McLean come over and we'd have peanut gallery people would come for clinics to my place and we would all sit around with our picnic lunches and our bottles of wine and watch everyone's lessons and it was just all about this group of women you know the lessons get more and more hilarious and flamboyant as the day went on um, as we imbibed a little bit much and yeah and again our comments from the sidelines got more and more vociferous so we and it was just this group of ladies we used to call ourselves galloping housewives and it was like it was just about that kind of like camaraderie and that and that community that we have. So I initially started writing about the things that were important to me that about bringing some joy back into the riding, about what was really important about the things that we've got going on in our community. And then people started approaching me and asking for help with things. 
approaching me for ideas about the issues or challenges that they were facing. I mean, all the things that we talked about in this podcast today, people look at those sorts of things and they go, oh, isn't it amazing that you've achieved that? And I was like, oh, well, I'm ordinary. I'm so ordinary. You know, I, I don't come from a flash background. You know, I, I don't come from, I don't come from money. I don't. Um, I'm not particularly talented. I didn't start until I was much older. I am lazy. I'm a procrastinator. I, you know, there's all these things that I. There's nothing special about me. And so, but people would look at those things and go, "Oh my God, you, you know, how how do I do that?" And I was like, "Well, that's easy. It really is. You know." And so started putting things like that together. And actually the first course that I wrote is the Skinny Bitch Code. Again, very tongue in cheek. It was my background, I mean, background 20 years in nursing and I've spent a lot of time doing health and nutrition, you know, just through personal interest and things. But people would say to me, you know, you're in shape and how do you stay in shape and all that kind of thing. And I was like, well, it's easy. You know, it's like, and the Skinny Bitch Code is literally that you, people that you look at that call them skinny bitches and you know they're eating pizza and drinking beer and still looking good in a bikini it was like well it is easy because they've cracked the skinny bitch code so that's why and and so I had this group of women that I was doing um that I was meeting for a mindset group and they were, and they made a comment on one on a photo of me and I was like I'll write this thing for you if you like and so I wrote it for them they all did it, raved about it. And so that became, that just became the first course. It wasn't my intention to write that first, but it was just what happened. Um, and also my way of writing, people tend, tend to like it. I kind of like a bit irreverent and a bit <laughs> off colour um, and just, yeah, not take ourselves too seriously. But it was more, and then, and that's what became, and then yeah, I've got Sort Your Shit Out and then Get a Life, which you know, it's more sort your shit out is especially it's my kind of like flagship because I can get alongside people and, and go through it with them. And it's just as a really simple method that no matter what shit that I've got in my life, what shit they've got in their lives, it's their way through. And it's like finding like so much finding that proof within that they've got exactly what it takes. That there's nothing extraordinary about anyone, um, about me, certainly, um, and that you can just get through. Yeah. Ordinary is your superpower. Yes. Yeah. I love that. That's awesome. So, all right. So you've done all these amazing things and you've had all these crazy setbacks and all this sort of stuff. So I'm assuming, you know, you've said you want to get back to the top level again, all that kind of stuff. So how do you go about setting your goals? How do you go about keeping up motivation and accountability for them? Yeah, so my, my goals, my goals are easy. Yeah, I set them just the way that I was talking about before, about having where it's going to allow me to be beyond that. You know, like what it's going to allow me to do. Right now, I am still in business. That so I've got I've got a couple of businesses that are go, going. I've got my pre- retail business, and which is good which is fine, though my husband and my oldest child are actually doing a lot of the work with that and the Galloping Housewife. Galloping Housewife is where my heart is because it's about helping people. You know, I I was helped by a course like this, like so, so an online course like this, but it was written for a different group. There's nothing out there that's in the space that I feel is talking to middle-aged Galloping Housewives. There is, it's for younger people or just people with the ability to focus on one thing at, at a time, you know, that they don't have to keep all this other shit going at the same time that they are 
sort of fixing one aspect of their life. It's that sort of like recognition that we are multifaceted and we are multidimensional and that is not an actually a problem. It's another asset because we've got so many tools at our disposal. So my thing, my, my way I set my goals is my goals are is to get the Galloping Housewife A to build the community to serve out there, but also to have that as my primary business. Um, so to reduce reliance on other people and to be able to sort of step out and, and, and step forward just as the galloping housewife. Yeah, and I guess my riding stuff, I mean, I've got, I've also got, like I've got, well, teenage, um, young adults. My oldest is 20 and my youngest is uh, 17. So they're stepping out into the world at the moment. So, yeah, I've got stuff going on with them, just helping them out, helping them make, make that transition. Yeah, that, that's really important for me right now and so your why on the other side of that is that they get gone and I don't have to deal with them anymore um (laughs) (laughs) yeah we live in hope don't we my health and fitness is pretty good at the moment but it's just with the horses is yeah I just feel like there's unfinished business I've got my Percy I've got my little Connemara and that is about the fun in my life you know that is just about doing it because I enjoy it um, and do you yeah. have any dressage horses coming through at the moment? Or? Yeah, I do. I have a soup. Uh, yeah, I do. But you talk about things that go wrong. So um, I finally got to the point, I don't have any owners and I don't have any sponsors at all. So I finally got to the point where I could buy a young horse and I found a, a nice one through a it's a dealer's yard here in, in the UK. And he <clears throat> was within my price range because he was smaller and he was older, so he was bred as he was bred as a breeding stallion prospect, and just never grew. And then COVID hit, so he was thrown out in the field in the hope that he would grow, and then he didn't. And then there was no point in presenting him for stallion, and so he's kind of like done very, very, very little. So then they decided that they were just going to flick him, gelded him as a five-year-old, and send him over here to sell from Holland, and. So he was, he's dead green. He's only ever been produced for, like they break them in, they kind of produce them for the stallion um, grading. And and then he was in a sales yard. So he was sales produced, you know, uh, crank him and spank him. And so, I mean, all done well, all done, not done, yeah. but yeah, no finesse put into it. And so I could afford him, which was fantastic. So I went down there, I bought him sight unseen, actually bought him off a video because he was just exactly my sort of, pocket rocket type quirky and you know square and so I went down picked him up brought him home settling him in and him in went, was going really well and I was actually sick at the end of last year for a little bit missed a couple of events and took took two or three weeks off the horses and then when I got went back out I was literally rode him for two days and he injured his eye and that oh. set off a uveitis. <clears throat> and so we spent the next four months in and out of hospital. Yeah, on box rest and in and out of hospital and not being ridden. Well, I, I rode him a couple of times, but um, got bugged off mightily once because he was a sore. And so, and eventually we removed his eye about six weeks ago, two months ago. So yeah, so he's back in work now. Um, and he's super, but he's now six years old and he is learning what a circle is, you know. Um, yeah. So- <laughs> It's like he's, he's and all his foundations, yeah, yeah. So he's yeah, just doing basics. So I, I mean, like I may compete him. He's very sharp, very sensitive horse. So I'll, I'll might compete him just for mileage, just for getting him out and getting him to places. But I'm yeah, I've got it'll be a while. 
Yeah. yeah. So, but I just, I mean, I literally at this at this point can't afford to buy anything else. So it's, uh, yeah, that that's where I am. Yeah. But people do it with one horse, you know, people go on, you know, I mean, I did it with one horse first time and, you know, Adeline Knielsen got to the Olympics, did quite well at the Olympics, uh, you know, as a teacher with one horse, you know, it's like, it's, you're going, you know, she went to all her shows with a trailer. It was like, the horse flight, it was because there was, um, that's what she had, you know, people, 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 and that's the thing, people look at me as being you know, extraordinary and doing wonderful things. It's like, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people out there doing exactly what I've done, you know, and doing it better. Yeah. And I think as well, a lot of people miss the fact that you go and do these amazing things and that's not the pinnacle. Life goes on after these amazing things and you still just are living an everyday life and going on about your business. And so many people, you know, they get to that point and then they have nothing. Because they go, they oh, do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's exactly right. And it's actually like it's a it's a huge, it's a really recognised, um, you know, recognised mental health issue. I mean, Charlotte Dujardin, and she's talked being really, really frank about the, her depression after winning two gold medals. Yeah, you know, it's a it's 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 that kind of like if you put, uh, yeah, if that's. It's not even if that's what it's all about. It's that it's that reality of hitting a major goal. It's like then what next? Um, and I mean, like maybe I'm fortunate because I haven't hit any of my major goals. So it's like you, know, you constantly want to keep going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's like not a problem for me. You know, I mean, anything that I've, any anything that I've achieved, I've done accidentally. So it's like well, but yeah, it doesn't mean I still haven't got goals. <laughs> yeah. Well, before we sort of finish up today, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been awesome. I Do you have any sort of last words of wisdom that you want to add in before we do wrap it up? Because I don't want to take all your time today. Yeah. I mean, like my, my key phrase is you don't need to be extraordinary to do extraordinary things. And that's, yes. you know, that's just it. It's like, just keep going, you know, like just you know, and whatever you do is extraordinary anyway. I mean, it's it's extraordinary in your own world. And I have a I'm a firm believer. I mean, and this is so much why I've got the galloping housewife going is the butterfly effect. You know, if I can a handful of women's lives and a handful of women's expectations and what they do, then they're gonna pass that on. They're gonna pass that on to their families, they're gonna pass that on the to the communities, they're gonna pass them on to society as a whole and society needs it at the moment so yeah yeah very true who else feels super motivated after hearing from shawan today i feel like nothing is impossible if you just keep persevering after talking to shawan and also guys please do go and look up shawan on her social media especially facebook check out her facebook page the galloping housewife and also if you feel like you are a galloping housewife go on and check out her courses and maybe she can help you in the future and just once again thank you so much Shawan for coming on today it has been a privilege thanks for listening in to another episode of the approachable equestrian podcast if you loved anything that you heard today remember to hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode also if you could take a couple of seconds just to leave a rating and review it would absolutely mean the world to me And also, it'll help others like you find the podcast and hopefully help them on their journey. Until next time, have the best day and I'll see you all again soon.